Well, open your Bibles to Colossians 3 this morning. Colossians 3 this morning. Last Sunday night, we had our family gathering, and we practiced the ordinance of baptism. Um, And before a service like that, what I typically do is I meet the folks that are going to be baptized downstairs, and uh, we then talk about what's going to happen up there, and then we go to our individual changing rooms, and we prepare to get wet, which usually means we... We put on clothes that we don't mind uh, um, getting drenched. Uh, I've had a number of people ask me, you know, why don't you wear waders or other things so you can just jump right out of that, and I've just, I've never done. In fact, the first baptism that I ever remember doing um, as a pastor was uh, in a farm pond, and uh, I never took into account that when you do something like that, there's a bank in a farm pond and that in a farm pond, there's also lots of mud. And so by the time we got done with baptism, I had one leg about like this and one up about that high, and it was quite difficult getting people back up out of the the water. So we don't have that problem here at Timberlake. But the early church did it a little differently. Um, When a person was baptized, they would come, come to the water of baptism And they would discard the clothes that they had put on uh, before they they were baptized. And once going into the waters and coming out, they, they would be given a white robe, symbolizing the cleansing work that God had done in their in their life. It was a a visual reminder that they had put off the deeds and the defilements of their old life, and they had put on the life of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's happened to you. In in salvation, God has taken away your unrighteousness, all that you were before Christ. He's cast your sins as far as east is from the, the west. And He has clothed you in the righteousness of His Son, white and clean. Not, not through the physical act of baptism, but through the washing of regeneration, the work of the, the Holy Spirit of God, which we have been looking at in the book of, of Romans. And he's now given you a new life. Uh, you live a life now that's different from the life that you lived before salvation. You, you now live a life that imitates your, your Lord, which is symbolized in, in baptism and That's what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us about, both in Romans 6 and then, in particular here, in Colossians 3. He's been teaching us about this in very practical ways. Paul says, if it's true that we have put off the old man and put on the new one, then why would you want to to put on the dirty deeds that that you used to to, to live in? Why would you want to put those back on in in your life, the the vile vices and attitudes that once marked you? The the Lord says we're to discard those sin-contaminated defilements and not put them on again. We're to to leave the clothes that we had on before our baptism uh, uh, outside of the water. We're to wear the, the robe white and clean, the the virtues of of the Lord, which is what we'll look at today. We've talked about putting off things, and now today we're going to talk about putting 
putting on some, some new ones, which is another step. We're also to adorn the new virtues of Christ, like a clean garment, the attitudes and actions that should now permeate our, our, our living. And so, having looked at Romans 6, 1 through 14, we, we now turn to this parallel passage in Colossians, both written by the Apostle Paul, both are written about this union with Christ and then the, the way that we're now to, to live, this, this old man and, and new man. And in Romans 6, we saw there was a change that happened whenever you were, you were saved, a change in how you relate to sin, how you relate to God, and all of that was because of your union with, with Christ. But, but immediately after stating that, then Paul gives us commands that, that exhorts us, or four of them in particular. And since we've gotten this theology and these marching orders from Romans 6, we, we want to see how to, how to do this in, in, in daily life. So we're looking at this parallel passage in, in Colossians that teaches us the principle of biblical replacement, putting off and putting on. The deeds and the desires of the old life must be put aside like a dirty shirt, and the virtues of our new life in Christ must be, must be put on. And we just finished working through what we are to to put off in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Now we turn to verses 12 through 13, uh, 13, 14, I should say, 12 through 14. You recall there were two lists that we worked through to discard. The first had to do with sexual immorality, and the imperative that Paul uses there shows how serious that one is, how serious that, that you have to take radical action toward those things. It's not to be messed around with. You're to mortify those things. You're to kill them. The second list of sins, no less serious, they're more common to our interpersonal relationships. And we're to put them both aside. And the imperative that Paul uses for that second list, to lay aside like a garment, is a similar word that he uses here in, in, in verse 12 that we're going to see. We're now to put on. We're to put off these old clothes and put on, put on the new ones. We're not just to stop doing things. We're to start doing others. And you have to put both of these sections to, together if you're going to be successful in, in putting this into practice. If you only put half of this into practice, if it, it, you're going to be lopsided. You're going to wobble in your, in your Christian life. You're always going to be focused on the negative. If you're only working on the putting off, you're never going to get to the positive and you're going to, you're going to miss the mark. And it's going to lead you to a life that's focused, overly focused on human effort and not on God's grace. It's going to look like a Christianity that focuses more on the externals rather than the inward matters of the heart. However, if you were only focused on the list that we're going to start covering today, what you're supposed to put on, the positive side, then you're not going to be prepared for the real battle of temptation that you're going to, that you're going to face in life, and you're probably going to fall to it. So you need both of these, which is why Paul links them together here. It takes both of these efforts to, to win the war. You have to put off the vices of the old man and put on the virtues, uh, virtues of, the, of the new man. Who is being renewed in the image of, of him, the, the, one who, the one who saved you, saved you? Or to say it plainly, you don't just remove the wrong things, you add the, the right things, which is the principle of, of replacement. And a believer has a course to follow, and we have the power now to carry it out because the Holy Spirit of God lives, lives inside of us. And Paul says that you have to start this with changing your thinking. It all starts with a new thinking. Look at Colossians 3, verse, verse 2. He says, Set your mind on the things above 
and not on the things that are on the, the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in, in God. Verse 1, he says, since you have been raised up with Christ, this is an assumption that's already happened, so he's talking to believers here, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, then set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things there. Why? Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and then he moves to the application in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead. Literally put these members to death. And you remember he gives us a, a list here of sins we're to put off. Immorality, verse 5, impurity, uncleanness, passion, inordinate desire, and finally covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. And then in verse 8 he starts the second list. Uh, or, or, uh, yeah, for the second list. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with his evil practices. This old self, new self. This is what we looked at last week. The sins of a divisive heart end up on a disparaging tongue. They come out of our mouths. And then the sins that dislocate or disrupt the body of of Christ, which he covers in, in verse 11. First list are sins of, that, that affect your desire and your devotion to God. And the second is uh, sins that, that affect your relationships. We said these, these are two fronts that you have to fight on, like World War II, the European and the Pacific theater. And anger, wrath, and malice can all be bunched together. They're sins that primarily reside in the heart. And then there is slander, abusive speech, and lying. And these are like the gun barrels that, that carry the bullets of anger and wrath and, and malice. It's how it comes out. And the last one was set apart a little bit. It's found in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in, in, in all. There's... In the church, in Christ, what really matters, there's no superiority by heritage of Jew or Greek, no superiority from piety, circumcised or uncircumcised, no superiority by their own way of life, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, no superiority by relations and status, by honor or wealth. These differences are irrelevant to the Christian because Christ is all and in all. And so you shouldn't have any social or racial prejudices that are operating in, in your heart or, or in the church. And now after all of that, he turns the coin over and tells us that we need to add some things, beginning in verse, verse 12. Look if you were at verse 12. He says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, like an overcoat, which is a bond of, which is the perfect bond of, of unity. So in verse 12, he starts with a reminder of our new position as a motivation. He says, you are chosen of God, holy and beloved. And then there's a call to clothe yourself with these five virtues. Here's what you're to put on. Heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Then there's a separate call to bear and forgive. Bearing with one another in verse 13, forgiving each other. 
And finally, a call to love, which, as I said, goes on like an overcoat, uh, holds all of these virtues together, enables this whole list to work seamlessly. We'll call it four seams of a believer's Christ-like garment. There's a reminder of of our special position, a command to adorn yourself with a specific pattern, a call to follow a selfless practice and an instruction to practice all of that with a perfecting bond, the, the bond of, of, of love. We'll only be able to cover the first one today, but it is, it's, it's breathtaking, really. It's our special position. The first seam in a believer's garment is a reminder of our special position as, as believers, and there's a declaration of our new identity. He says we have a new identity in, in, in Christ. And he declares that there's this, this new identity. You are God's chosen. And then there's a result of this new identity. is being God's chosen. You're holy. You're set apart under the Lord. And the basis of that, that new identity is that you're, you're beloved. You're, you're specifically and particularly and specially loved by, by the Lord. And you can see that right there in verse 12. So as those who have been, past tense, chosen of God, holy and beloved, and here's the command, put on a heart of, of compassion. Before Paul gives the command about what we're to put on, he lists three motivations here. That's, that's what these are. These are these, this is a reminder to motivate you to, to fulfill this, this list. And he gives that motivation by describing our new identity as this new man in, in Christ Jesus. And, and the idea is continued back from, from, from verse 10. Look at verse 10. Watch how he bridges these two things together. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. There's the old. Verse 10. And have put on the new self or the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And then in verse 12, so as those, those who are in this new man, and then he describes us, chosen of God, holy and beloved, then then put on. He he says we're now people who have put on the new self. We're people who are put on the the new man. And because of that, you're you're to put on this list. The encouragement that he gives for obeying the command is, is found in these, these two adjectives in this very special participle. He, he says here that as the elect or chosen of God, as the holy and beloved of God, then, then there's the command. It's, a, it's like a carrot. It's like a motivation. It's a, it's a reminder before before you're, you're, you're told to do something. He says, remember something, realize something profound, realize that you are a special possession of God and you hold a special position as a believer because of, because of Christ. And you might be here this morning and you might look at your life and you might say, I don't feel very special. Uh, if I look at my life, I don't know why God would say that about me. In fact, I, I read the introductions to a number of these letters where he calls believers holy and saints. 
And I say that, that's what he says about me, but, but I, don't, I don't see how that's, that's the case. Well, well, maybe you'll get a better understanding of it this morning because it has nothing to do with you or your life whatsoever. That's what this word means. We are chosen people who are holy and who are dearly loved. And all three of those words he uses to describe this special position, this, this, this reminder, and they're plural, and they're past tense. Notice that. You have been chosen of God, holy and b- beloved. You all are. And he, he's speaking about all of the believers. And if you know your Old Testament, or if you were a Jew listening to this letter being read, your antennas would immediately go up because all three of these descriptions are the standard way of designated Israel, designating Israel in the Old Testament. And now they're used to designate the church in the, in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's simply God's chosen. You are God's chosen. And as such, you're holy to the Lord, and the basis for that position is God's particular, particular love. Believers are set apart for God from all the other people of the, of the world. And because of that, or because they are dearly loved by, by the Lord in a, in a special way. This is identical from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8 in the, in the Old Testament. Listen to this, or look for this tripart distri- description of how God describes Israel, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 7. Talking of Israel, God says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples who were the fewest of all, uh, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you, because you were beloved, and kept the oath that He swore to your, your forefathers. And Paul now uses all of those same descriptions of believers who are, who are in Christ. Believers who are in Christ now hold this special position as, as well. Doug Moo said, holy designates the result of God's election. You're set apart from the world unto God. And beloved, your beloved is the basis of it. As Israel was God's chosen people, they were set apart from all the other nations around them. They received the law, they received God's special grace, God's special love, and they were set apart unto holiness, and they're to keep these commands. And in the same way, as God's uh, uh, beloved and, and, and holy and, 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 and being His, His chosen, you now are to put on these virtues of Christ and put off these things that were before in this exact same pattern as in the Old Testament. And now Paul says, we who are in Christ, men and women of the new creation, who were once alienated from God, past tense, We're now included as His chosen people, set apart unto Him from the world, which is what holy means. And it's an obvious next step in in this progression that it begins in in, in verse 11, this this last hidden sin that you're to put off. Look back at verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all, so as those... 
who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on. Now, now that you're God's chosen, put on. Paul says something has changed at the coming of Christ. It, 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 it's, it's not Israel only any longer. That's to, to be his people, to, to draw the nations to him. Now that Christ has come, he is all and in all. And in that change, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, circumcision and uncircumcision, the wall between those who are inside the Mosaic Covenant and those who are outside of the Mosaic Covenant have been torn down. And the Gentiles who were once alienated from a life in God because they were not God's chosen people now have access in Christ, as just as Jews still do today who will trust in their Messiah. Look at the way that Paul uh, outlines this in Ephesians 2. Turn, turn back to Ephesians 2. We actually just went over this passage in the new member class yesterday. We typically focus during then on, on verses 19 and, and 20, but I want you to start in verse 12. and See how Paul says this in, in graphic detail here. Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 19, speaking of the this is the same thing. R- remember, therefore, that, that formerly you, the, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, r- remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded. Listen to all these, these words. Remember, formerly, remember, you, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, what a horrible description. But that's where we were before Christ. That's what you were in your former position before, before Jesus. But, but, but look at verse 13. Well, notice the timing ver, uh, words here. But now, that's what you were formerly, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of, uh, of Christ. And, and what did he do? I mean, what's the significance of him? Well, he is all and in all. Look, look at verse 14. For he himself, notice the focus on Christ, he is all in all. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man. And there's our word, thus establishing peace. And this new man is found in the in the church, verse 16. And he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross and having put to death the, the enmity. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, both Jew and Gentile. For those who were both, uh, for, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're of God's household. And now he's talking about the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also 
are being built together into a dwelling of the, the Spirit of God. He's describing the, the, the transition, the transformation, the, the two dispensations, how God dealt with the world in the time of the Mosaic Covenant and the promises being fulfilled in Christ and, and now how, how it unfolds. Turn back to Colossians 3. Paul says, We who had no access to God now have access to His blessings through Christ. We, we are now chosen of God, or God's chosen, holy, and, and, and beloved. And when Paul uses these terms, which, which God used for Israel, that doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel, but now that we're, now we are included in the people of God. We're like wild olive branches grafted in to the same tree. And prior to Christ, the only way to get that designation as God's chosen was to be a Jew or to be a proselyte. But now there has been the fulfillment of God's promise in bringing the Messiah and the Gentiles have been incorporated into the people of God in, in Christ. And Paul is reminding us with these three words that that's all part of God's plan. His predetermined plan to do it this way. His prior action is what brought all of this about. It's not man-made. We are chosen. We are made holy. We, we are beloved. And all of those things are things that God has done, not, not us. We of all people should, should know that, being Gentiles. We're not even Jews who could claim special status uh, by birth or, or, or by circumcision. We have no special status before God. And what, we're, what are we to do in light of this? Paul says we're to clothe ourselves with these virtues that he's about to list, or to say it another way. He's now going to command us to put forth effort, but, but your effort has nothing to do with salvation. What God has done for you in salvation is the motivation for you to put forth your effort. But you do put forth effort in sanctification. Salvation is what theologians call monergistic. Mono, meaning one, and ergon, meaning to work. Uh, together they mean the work of one. Salvation is the work of one. Salvation is the work of God. Salvation is God's work alone. No cooperation of man and God. It's God. But sanctification is synergistic. It's a cooperative work. God's grace undergirds your effort, but you, but you labor. You put off these things and you put on the, these other things. Now that you have been made into, into this, this new man and we now have this, this new access because we're God's chosen or, or His elect. It's a truth that's taught many places in the New Testament. But quite frankly, it's, for some reason, it's often a topic avoided in the church. I mean, people read over the word elect or chosen um, and, and kind of hush, or like it's a dirty word or something. But it's glorious. I mean, it's the key motivation <laughs> for our work in Christ. I think that the only sermons I ever heard on the topic of, of election were ones that were misrepresented whenever I first came to, the, to Christ. Oh, you believe that's going to kill evangelism? Or people who say that, it's like God playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo with people and indiscriminately sending some to, to hell. And and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I don't know anyone who believes that, quite, quite frankly. The Word is all over the Bible, and so it's obviously a truth that God would expect us to know and believes that we, believe that we need to know. It's, it, it's everywhere. 
In Ephesians 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the, of the world. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, there's that same term, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and, and, and full conviction. Romans 13, 8 says your names have been, have been written in the book of life before the, before the foundation of the, of the world. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, I think, is a good summary of it all. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of, of God. Now, now, this is not up there, but, but, but listen. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I mean, he's saying, join with me in giving testimony. You're going to suffer for giving testimony for, for the Lord. And what's the motivation? What, where does Paul go to give, to give Timothy strength to do that? He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He has granted us in, in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's, it's, it's a motivation. It's energizing. John MacArthur said, no one becomes a Christian solely by their own choice. Rather, believers are those who have been chosen of God. And Charles Spurgeon, in his Spurgeon-esque way, said... I am sure God, I'm sure He chose me before I was born or else He would have never chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. How true. MacArthur said the doctrine of election crushes human pride exalts God, produces joy and gratitude to the Lord, grants eternal privileges and assurance, promotes holiness, and makes one bold and courageous. For who has been chosen by God for eternal life has no need to fear anything or anyone. And that is a truth that I need and you do as, as well. And right here it is, heading up this list. I can remember many years ago, uh, a pastor preached a sermon here. I don't know, it was the first couple of years of my uh, tenure here at, at, at Timberlake. He was filling in for me, and he preached a sermon on this, on this word. And um, it didn't go over very well. Uh, the sermon was great, but the, the illustration that he used really got off track. Um, he tried to demonstrate this word by using an actual couple in the church. Um, uh, an actual couple who had recently adopted a, a little girl from, a, from another, another country. And, and he said, uh, uh, election is like how this couple went to a far off land. And, and when he did that, he stepped out of the pulpit uh, and began walking down the aisle, which is pretty odd uh, for, for t being here at Timberlake. I mean, you... This is kind of a stationary position. <laughs> and that was odd, but, but then he goes back to the couple and he's standing over them while he's, while he's preaching. And he said, it's like this couple, and they looked at that all of the babies in, the, in that orphan nursery, and they chose this one little baby right here. 
And when he said that, I mean, you could see all the Arminians in the church start to get uncomfortable. And, and, and then he said, and, and he left all of the other ones. And but with that, they were, they were turning red. And I just got back from vacation. He's preaching for me after getting back from vacation. And I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a fun Monday. I can tell right now. <laughs> and the problem with that illustration was that the image that he gave is that the image of, of innocent little orphans who were abandoned babies being rejected by these adoptive parents. That's a horrible illustration. It's not like God's election at all. The problem is babies are, are, are cute and cuddly and, and innocent. God's election wouldn't be like going to a nursery full of babies, but more like a man coming to a pen of vicious dogs, trained to be killers, condemned to be euthanized, unredeemable. And this man set his love on one of those nasty animals, and then taking it out of the pen, lovingly nurtured it and gave it a, a new disposition. And then every time he trained the dog not, not to fight in a, in a pit anymore for its former master, but he transformed that dog into a service animal for autistic children or, or a guide for the blind. Now, in that analogy, no one w would ever think that it's unjust that those other dogs were euthanized. They were evil. They killed other people. They weren't innocent, cute, little cuddly babies. And anyone who, who would have known that dog before as a, as a fighting dog, when, when they learned that, that they're now leading around disabled children and they've been transformed, they would never give glory to that dog for changing his ways. He would know, that person would know that someone had transformed that, that animal, that evil animal, and trained them. And that's who would get glory for altering that evil animal into a kind tender-hearted friend. That's a better illustration of God's electing, transforming love. He saw us in the world, evil and full of sin, hating Him, and our deeds were evil, condemned for our choices, unredeemable. And He set His love on us. And He wooed us with His kindness in the gospel, and He gave us a new nature in regeneration. And then He transformed us from what we were into something useful to Him, and and useful to others. And in all of that, no one would look at us or look at me and say, wow, he's smarter than the average bear. They would know who exactly gets the glory, which would be God. And if God would do that, Paul's point, if God would do that for, 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 for people who didn't deserve it and, and didn't earn it, think of this as a Christian. Do you think he's going to throw you away whenever you sin as a believer? I mean, do you think he's ever going to say no more grace if there's that kind of grace front-loaded that actually brings you to him? I mean, do you think he won't continue the work that he, that he started whenever he saved you? Of course he's going to continue that work. Which is why this, this doctrine is, is in the Bible. It stabilizes you by, by shouting God's eternal commitment to you. It gives you blessed rebar for, for life. We are God's chosen. But we're not only that, we're, a, we're also a holy people. 
So then as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. So the next motivation that, that Paul gives here is that believers are set apart unto God to live different from, from the world. And, which means when believers don't act different from, from the world, they violate the, the purpose of their calling. The word holy means to be set apart. You probably know this. To set apart, be set apart from something unto something. Like the utensils that were used in the, in the temple were holy to the Lord. They were set apart from regular use unto, unto service of, uh, of God. And again, this, this follows the, the same pattern for, for Israel in the, in the Old Testament. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has, has chosen you. Well, yeah, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Paul says, having put on a new man, we're not only God's chosen, but we're holy, just, just like Israel was to be holy. We're, we're set apart from the world uh, unto God. This is the result of, of, of God's election. We're holy unto the Lord. We're not of the earth, but we're of heaven, which is what Paul told us at the beginning of the chapter when we're, we're told to seek heavenly things. Remember verse 1, set your mind on the things above because you've been raised up, you've been seated with Christ. We're, we're no longer children of darkness, but children of the light. That, that's why we're to walk in the light. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, all the way back in Colossians chapter 1, verse, verse 13. I mean, all of these differences. And we've been set apart spiritually, and therefore we're to be set apart in our actions like ceasing to do the things in verses 5 through, through 7. I mean, Paul is, is saying that this positional sanctification, you have been set apart unto God, must become a progressive sanctification. Positionally, before God, you're holy, which is why he calls us holy people, even though we look at our lives and say, I don't see holiness there all the time. Well, well unto God you are. You're set apart positionally. And then the commands come on the basis of that, on the basis of God's commitment to you and His grace to you. You're safe. You're justified. And now you're to live out those commands. Now the commands come to, to progressively become holy. Positional sanctification becomes progressive sanctification that's then matched by our lives or become what you already are. There's one more depiction that, that Paul uses here. It's a, it's a final motivation. He says, so then as those, verse 12, holy and, and, and beloved, chosen of God, holy and beloved. He says, he says believers are, are, are beloved. This is a... Um, I don't know the. I don't even know an adjective. Heart melting. I mean, everything just seems to fall short. This means that we're objects, not of God's wrath, which we were by nature. We are now objects of God's special love. You were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, were with the love that that He loved us. 
We're God's chosen people, we're God's holy people, and we are now His, His beloved. It's a very special word. These first two are adjectives. This one is a participle, which is functioning adjectively, I believe. Elect and holy, that, that's the adjectives that he uses. This is a participle, and here it has the idea of God setting his love on you. And the idea that this love remains. Once he did it, 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 it's, it won't be removed. It has ongoing results. And beyond that, this love will never change. It's, a, it's durable. It's an eternal commitment from God to you, not based on anything you did or anything that you ever will do. I mean, think about that. When Jesus died on the cross, you weren't even born. And yet God loved you knowing what you would do in the future and knowing what you would do even after you came to Jesus Christ. And yet His commitment to you is, is I love you with a, with a durable love, a faithful love, a particular kind of, of, of love, which is what, what this word in, indicates. It's a love that's, that's different. I mean, we know the Bible says, for God so loved the world. God loves all people. God is love. But this is a word that, that, that speaks about the, the way that, that God's love specifically is expressed to to his people who are, who are now in, in Jesus Christ. You might think of it this way. I love you as my, my church family, but my wife is my beloved. It's a special, specific kind of love that I have for, for, for Tracy. I, I, I love my, my relatives in, in West Virginia, and I probably have a lot of them in West Virginia. Some I don't even know. But my children here are, are my beloved. I love them in a, in a specific way, a special way, a, a, a unique way. It may help you this, this differentiation between how God loves the world and then how God loves a Christian. I mean, love can have differences. God loves mankind in a universal way. But Paul says he loves you in a specific kind of way. He's committed to you in a way that's different from the world. Just like you love your children, different from, from others. Now, God's love for the world is not less. He's not saying that His love for the world is less. That's what He's trying to highlight here. He, 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 he's trying to show you that, that His love for you is, is more. I mean, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, that's an unfathomable love, isn't it? I mean, that's a love worthy of worship and, 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 and honor. Jan Boyce said someone tried to express the greatness of God's love and printed it in a little card that I went over for you when we looked at this in Romans, John 3.16. It had 12 parts arranged down the, the side of the card, uh, which, which added phrases that were, were printed across for them. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest attraction should not perish the greatest promise, but 
the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. That is an amazing love. But Paul says those who have come to God in his Son are loved greater still. They're beloved. You're described as God's beloved, his precious possession. It's the same description that God uses for Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Eight times the word beloved is used in the gospel, the Gospels, and it's used to describe your brother, Jesus Christ. In every case, God the Father speaking about Christ says, This is my beloved Son. And so those who are in Him are now called God's beloved. And that should motivate us to want to act like it. To put off the, the deeds of our former lives and put on the excellencies of, of Christ. And so Paul says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That motivate you? It does me. You are far, you're loved far more than you could ever imagine. Even if you're outside of Christ this morning, God loves you so much that he offers his only begotten son to you, his death on the, on the cross. But if you have come to Christ, he loves you in a way that, that, that you have to be reminded of on a regular basis in the Bible because when you look at yourself, you know that you don't, you don't deserve it. And so Paul sets up here one of the two ways that we, we view salvation or that God views salvation in, in, in the Bible. We only see it on, a, on, on, an, on the earthly uh, sphere. So we don't limit the gospel. We, we offer the gospel to all. Spurgeon said, if, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the back of the elect, then I would go around lifting up shirts. But since, I, since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will and when whatsoever believes, then I know that he is one of God's elect. Spurgeon also said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. As if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exhortations or exertions. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. It's God's work to save. It's our work to preach the gospel. And those are the two lenses that you see in the Bible. The one through which God's work of salvation is described and the ones which our work in the process. We're to go into all the world and make disciples or to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're to teach them all things whatsoever commanded you. And then there's also an eternal chronology where God sees salvation and it's working 2,000 years ago, before the foundation of the world. He sees it in the future. And in that sense, using your clock doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it's true. Romans 8, which we'll get to, for those whom he foreknow, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and you are now part of those brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's in the future. And the Bible is very clear. 
that God desires all to come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The gospel is offered to the whole world, but the Bible is also very clear that God has chosen to save a people from eternity, which is before time, before the world ever was, and he will save those people. And if you're saved this morning, Paul says you're part of that number, and it should motivate you to be reminded that you were turned from a murderous pit bull locked up in a cage, unredeemable, and the God of all creation set his love on you and turned you into a service animal for an autistic child where you would give him glory alone. Colossians 3 is the service manual. This is how we're supposed to learn. We're to put off and we're also to put on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful. I remember wrestling with this, looking at my life and reading what you would say about me, what you would say about about believers. Unable to reconcile the two and finally resting in the truth of your word and oh what a what a motivation to live for you and what a comfort to know if you would go to all of this not because of anything that's in me or anything that I would ever do then you surely won't forsake me when I stumble when I fall or even as I try to put on and put off this, this list, you're committed to, to me and everyone here with a, with a durable love, an eternal love. May that motivate us, Lord, to continue to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing, Jesus paid it all.